Welcome to Viewpoint, a TD Securities podcast. Listen in as we draw perspectives from a variety of thought leaders on key themes influencing markets, industries, and the global economy today. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hello, and welcome to episode four of Viewpoint, a TD Securities podcast. My name is Ty Panagopoulos, Chief Information Officer at TD Securities, and I'll be your host for today's episode. And I want to talk today about fintech, its partnership, and, and its pain points with the financial services industry. Luckily, I'm very, very thankful to be joined by two people who are far more interesting than myself. Uh, so we've got Diana Paradis, who is the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Suede Labs, uh, as well as Anthony Giuliano, who is Chief Technology Officer and General Partner of Landmark Ventures. So uh, welcome and thanks guys for joining. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much for having us. Uh, and uh, Ty, don't don't sell yourself short. You're you're very interesting. <laughs> I was just going to say that. <laughs> Depends on point of view. But, uh, I'll take it. I think you know fintech has been something we've talked about for for quite a while in the industry. And I actually remember in the early days it was fear of disintermediation of the banks, right? So it's oh my god, it's, you know these small companies are going to come in, they're going to kill us. And then over time it morphed into hey, wait a minute, no, this might be an accelerant to how are we going to move faster and how we uh, do cool stuff for our business? How do we get quicker access to more modern technology? And how do we quickly partner, bolt on and, and drive? Um, and I think that, you know, that fueled a lot of excitement. And then what happened is we realized that bolting on really cool stuff with old bank legacy stuff wasn't so easy. And so we spent quite a bit of time, certainly at least in, in where I sit, in upgrading our infrastructure looking at our technology, improving our APIs, improving our ability to access things like cloud and starting to do uh, business in the SaaS world, which has now given us a you know, much easier approach to be able to integrate with a fintech. And however, what I'm finding is, although the tech has moved forward to get us to a place where we can easily leverage fintechs, it doesn't feel like our admin is caught up and they tend to still be in the legacy. You know, Keeping in mind that we are still a bank, we are a regulated entity, we do have a lot of obligations in terms of how we manage third parties. But it's really interesting because I think in the early days of me talking to fintechs, it was immediately I wanted to deep dive into the tech and the architecture and the APIs and everything that you do there. Now, I think my first question is, do you have a contract with us already? And if not, then, oh my God, let's you know, go down this path, which is going to be really painful. So I guess my, my first question is just kind of understanding. So I'll start with Anthony. How are you dealing with this? You deal with a lot of fintechs, getting them into financial services groups. What's your view on where it's headed and, and how we deal with this problem? You know, I think the first thing is perhaps to give a little bit of acknowledgement that you're not alone. It's not like that, you know, TD is the only firm that struggles with this. It seems to be every firm, regardless of whether you're a bank or otherwise. So that's the first piece. I think a second piece is realistically, and I'll say all the good things in the world about procurement and legal, because, you know, this is being recorded. But uh, realistically, at the end of the day, uh, they're trying to do their job and there's an old rubric that's in place in order to do it. And I think part of the reason for that comes down to some level of avoidance of risk. And, and part of it is just the amount of work that's involved, right? So, you know, when, when you really try to accelerate and, and you try to kind of drive this path, there are a lot of questions that kind of, you know, arise. Uh, and when I look at technologies like smart contracts, and I look at technologies like, you know, blockchain, and I look at technologies that perhaps enable, uh, you know, some level of disintermediation of the bank, because let's be clear, realistically, while the culture may still have been, you know, moved a little bit, it, it hasn't gone completely 
completely by the wayside, there is still a fear that, you know, fintech will somehow put traditional banking out of business. I'm not saying that legal and procurement are operating in that that world, right? I'm not saying that that's kind of, you know, where they're coming from. And that's why it takes six months to get an NDA with a new company. But it is at least at some level, there's just a ton of kind of influx. And so the question becomes then, how do you take some of that workflow off of their plates? I think that's where automation comes into play. How do you enable faster, you know, checks from a security and a transparency perspective? That's where some of the third-party risk management automation comes into play. And then I think, you know, realistically, something's got to change drastically. We've been toying around with this unique concept of innovation futures, allowing for, you know, trading back and forth on contracts, being able to simplify the process of doing business across our portfolio in its infancy. But my hope is that at some point, it'll be super easy to say, look, you know, I don't know the company, but I do know who who made it, right? And and so ultimately, I'm willing to take that chance and minimize the risk if the, the reward is great enough. But again, that's not how legal and procurement think. And so it requires executive leadership. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think, hey, I think you're absolutely right. I think the fear is still there. I think it's it got minimized a bit, but it's definitely still there. And yeah, you're spot on. And it's a executive leadership to sort of change the thinking, but I don't think it means taking more risk. I think it's just thinking about it differently. So Diana, you've been through this clearly. Uh, so you live it every day. So how do you feel about you know this this issue and how are you dealing with it? So it's it's a really interesting question because I think it has two sides to it. So I think in the first place, if you're an entrepreneur in fintech that sells to financial services, it is also very important to understand that it's a very regulated industry, right? You need to very much come with a hat that's very humbling about what you're trying to do. And effectively, you're really trying to change and rock the boat in some ways to an industry that has been around for hundreds of years, right? Financial services is one of the oldest industries in the world. And so the, there is a reality where as an entrepreneur, we're all at the beginning, right? Because now it's a very different story for us. But I remember at the beginning, we had to obviously learn and understand where procurement was coming from. From, right where legal was coming from and that is just something that you know you cannot come you know self-entitled thinking that as a fintech you just need to get everything that you want and that there's nothing you need to be changing i mean if google cloud and aws have to change their own terms specifically for the financial industry you can imagine that a fintech startup has to do the same thing and there are a few things that you really can do at the very early stages that really help reassure right and they're very simple you can get yourself you know iso certified you can you know commission a pen test which is 10 grand it's really not that expensive to to commission that you can get your house in order put the right kind of company handbook and that kind of stuff in place and all of those things don't really require a lot of funding and a lot of money to do. You can actually really get all of these things off the ground, you know, with $20,000 max, right? Just trying to do your own diligence and your own job to make life of procurement and legal easier. Then there is also the reality that you do need to have, you know, internal leadership, right? And you need to really have this kind of entrepreneurs within the organizations that you're selling that are the people who help you within, you know, to navigate the organization. And you need to stay close to your internal sponsors. And that's very important as well. And when we were saying not to sell yourself short ties because you're one of these entrepreneurs, right? And people like that, I really think have to be rewarded within their organizations for their, you know, their gut around adopting new technology, because it is something that helps the organization longer term. And you really can create these, you know, long-term partnerships uh, that are, you know, long-lasting, that are very good for the companies that are the first adopters and that fundamentally make the fintech company very loyal to them as well, right? And so I always like to think that fintech and the financial industry 
can really be partners. I'm all at the beginning in a very powerful way. And so if you get the right entrepreneurs, if they're supported internally, if management from the top supports, you know, taking new technologies on board, all of that will help legal and procurement to feel more comfortable that they can take a certain amount of risk. And then on the other extreme of, of you know, being more comfortable and flexible with risk, you want to almost get procurement people, legal people who are used to fintechs and understand and almost trained to uh, their onboarding because it is a very particular way of onboarding of all in early stages versus adopting large enterprise companies. And that's just something that requires a bit of upskilling internally as well. And I think to Diana's point too, and I'll, I'll add on to that, and I will also agree, I think, Ty, you do a great job of this. And so that is, you know, one of the more interesting points about it. I'm all the checks have cleared by the way. <laughs> At the end of the day, the realities are that when you're a legal organization for a firm, you set up a one-size-fits-all policy. And the reality is not all risk is created equal. Not all companies need to adhere to the same standard. There's a certain company that I've been working with, their CISO on a whole bunch of things. And effectively, you know, every company that comes in has to be FedRAMP certified. By the way, they're not FedRAMP compliant because they're not really doing business with the federal government, but they're using that as a standard, right? And it creates all of these roadblocks where little things like, you know, to do work on Salesforce. Now your company has to be FedRAMP certified also, even though the platform itself is not living in GovCloud. These types of one size fits all policies create you know, big issues. If you were in banking, you're not going to, as a, a bank, issue the same account to an individual that you issue to a large company, that you issue to you know, somebody who's high risk, low risk. Like Banking itself understands the concept of risk, but like the procurement and legal organizations and the contracts and administration organizations don't seem to understand that it's not one size fits all. Oh, that's, that's great. I, I, love, I love the comparison. Always put it in language that they all <laughs> understand, man. And I agree. I think you have to kind of tailor it a bit. And then when it's not tailored, it's definitely the onus is on the internal side to make sure we get through it. And it does tend to be uh, quite a journey. Do I need an insurance policy that's for $150 million if I'm touching a million dollars of business? Like, no. But the real question is, what's the impact of not doing it, right? What is the impact of screening out all this innovation? And I think the reality of that is the fear that people are having around disintermediation, that fear is real. Just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. The reality is... When's the last time you walked into a traditional bank, especially with COVID and pandemic and everything else, like the world has changed. Things really are now in a digital kind of framework. And so if you're not looking at these companies that are coming out and trying to partner with them, you're going to get taken over by them. So uh, like picking back up, uh, Anthony, on uh, you mentioned before with smart contracts like blockchain, on the one hand, they were going to completely disintermediate the banks and everyone's going to move to blockchain instead of bank account. To the other hand, which is this is going to revolutionize the banks because we're all going to go on to a single ledger and we're going to eliminate any sort of reconciliation and, and everything will be kumbaya and the regulators can look at our ledger and we don't even have to report to them. I don't feel that we've, we've hit either of those extremes. And I think that it does continue to get fueled by crypto, even though it's just simply the technology underneath it. So in your view, Anthony, where is it going? And, and do you see this the moment will come when blockchain kind of takes over? For all of the technology and innovation and wonderful things that are within our portfolio and that I represent, I feel like a Luddite at heart. Many people know that I still carry a BlackBerry, although with our recent transition, I've been unable to get it to work with email. So I may be phasing that out, even if I'm one of the last holders. But the reality is I did not understand blockchain. I'm still not sure I entirely understand blockchain. I did not understand crypto. I did not understand NFTs. And I'm still not sure I understand any of those things. So this is coming from a position of me saying, look, I kind of agree with you. I feel like the reality is all of this stuff is not as shiny as it once was. 
But the reality that I'm living in now is it's inevitable. This all will be the foundation for the future. NFTs are a thing. NFTs really will not go away. Crypto is not going away. I sit on and hold a reasonable crypto portfolio. I don't know why, but I do know that I'm going to be a part of it. And I think that there's enough kind of value here that blockchain, it's a particular tool for a particular job. There are a lot of untrusted transactions. There's a lot of need for transparency, but there's also a lot of people who get to make money today by living within the realm of not quite so transparent. You know, the reality is that transparency causes other issues for companies and for regulators. I'm a big proponent at this juncture, and it's come over a long, long time of being a, a, an adversary. And I think that even as I look at kind of the future, the question isn't if, it's when. And so is it 10 years, 100 years, you know, 150 years, 1,000 years? Who knows? But like the reality is decentralized currency, decentralized transactional capability and, and finance will be the future. That makes a lot of sense. I think it's inevitably coming and it's definitely not going away. Crypto is not going away. NFT, I think, will actually grow potentially at a more rapid rate. It seems to be something that people have really adopted fairly quickly. So I think it'll get there. I guess it's just wait and see and we'll continue to stay invested on the side. So we talk about you know blockchain and there's all sorts of other cool technology that comes into the, the fintech space at the front office, risk, analytics, AI, ML. But we talk a little bit and go shift over to you, Diana, and talk a little bit about Suede, which is, which is also a company I've been really excited about in terms of what it's done for our portfolio. You know, your your sweet spot is regulation technology, which you know, it was not always thought of as the cool kid. What got your passion going for RegTech and, and why are you excited to innovate in that space? Well, I think RegTech is the coolest space there is in FinTech, way, way more than blockchain. I think from my perspective, it's obviously, you know, the expertise that we came with and, and it just made a lot of sense that the regulatory space also deserved innovation. And it's interesting because I think that there are so many buckets of opportunities in terms of innovation that can be done in the back office, right? And that can be done actually in the operations side for the financial industry. The nice thing about the, you know, the rec tech space is that it's not a nice to have, right? So everybody has to submit to the regulators. I've evolved since 2008. It has obviously like a huge cost attached to it as well. So you almost realize that there is a huge opportunity. When I think of rec tech, I always call it one-on-one enterprise software innovation because this is actually really changing and actually helping our customers to not just do better regulatory reporting, for example, in our case or analytics or calculations, which is the, the work that we do every day, but it's also about helping them to think differently about their data and almost helping them to think uh, differently about their architecture and almost how can you use regulation as a way to free your data. It's a necessary cost. Why don't we turn that into something that's a positive spend that can give you more for, you know, more buck for your value, right? It's, it's, you have to spend the money, just do something with that money that can actually really help the organization to think more strategically. The point is that it's a huge opportunity for the whole industry, right? To spend the money in a way that helps them to do something that's more discretionary for your organization with money that you have to spend anyways, because you have to make the, the regulators happy. So yeah, I think rec tech is a super hot topic. Uh, it's been good to us. So I mean, obviously, it's been really exciting to be able to grow in that sector and to actually be a pioneer in the rec tech space in, in all sorts of ways. And it's good to not be in a super crowded space when it comes to innovation, right? It means that it really gives you an opportunity to innovate without having to worry too much about competition 
It's very complex. It requires a lot of analysis. It requires a lot of understanding of the nitty-gritty regulation, which sounds very boring, but it's actually quite interesting. I could talk for hours about regulation. And it's, you know, really a niche market with a huge TAM. So what's not to like? For us, it always was a big tax that we had to pay uh, every time a new rule came out. So it, it has been nice to see that, you know, that money to me now is more of an investment in data, which data is is the next big thing. And so I think that's been really positive. So that's great. When I think about it and how fast things move and certainly looking after a portfolio where you know, you're always at a bank and have some measure of legacy, some measure of you know where you're moving to the new and then some measure of cutting edge. In your view, and you know, you look at a lot of these companies, Anthony, you know, where, where should I be looking? You know, my crystal ball is no shinier than anybody else's. I think the key to that question is to be looking. It is not something that's just going to arrive on your doorstep. Now, there are ways you can make yourself become more of a, a net that you can cast that will kind of bring these things in. And I think, you know, back to earlier statements and because you're paying me for it, you know, you do a good job of that, Ty. I'm just kidding. For all the regulators, there's no payment. But the reality is you look for this in the places you least expect it and you think about it in the context of things that are are the art of the possible. So one of the big challenges for every technologist is if there's work that has to be done around figuring out how to apply a solution looking for a problem, it makes life difficult. That's, you know, one of the things that we do with all of our companies is about productization, is about aligning to a particular problem set. The best and the brightest usually come from folks having conversations and saying, I hadn't really thought about this particular thing this way. I have a problem. This solves for ABC. I've got problem DEF. Can I make this fit in a way? And I think one of the benefits of working with younger companies is you have the ability to have those conversations and they can say, actually, I'm willing to pivot. I'm willing to invest. I'm willing to create that long-term partnership that Diana alluded to that is really, you know, the value of, of actually having that. There's also one other kind of uh, misnomer I hear often, which is the concept of digital transformation. I've, you know, been very vocal about this over the past five years since the term kind of emerged. We need to stop thinking about it as transformation. It's digital evolution. And it's those incremental changes that you can make that are going to start to, you know, weed away at the the old legacy culture, at the old legacy investments. It's about positioning to be able to evolve. Transformation says that there's a beginning and there's an end. And if there's an end, then, you know, it's over. You know, at the same time, transformation is not always the same as, hey, we implemented Salesforce or, hey, we, you know, put something in AWS. Yeah, it doesn't touch anything, but we put it up there, right? You can't look at these projects and these programs as being transformation without at least understanding the evolutionary impact. To that end, companies that you partner with, I think we've got a great company in the data talent space. We've got a great company that you know is doing work around uh, AI and ML uh, applied to kind of the broader ecosystem of explainability. We are you know looking at how to disintermediate some of the kind of major cloud data platforms. So everything data related is on the docket, in my opinion. Anything that is going to be about how do you find ways to take blockchain whether that's Loopring or Devios or some of these kind of companies that are coming out that are doing cross-blockchain work uh, and make it more palatable and easier to adopt. Great example, we have a company called Agingo, right? And, and basically, you know, they built this platform of not only one blockchain. And the idea, even though that, you know, spells noob, it really does enable for fast transactions and overcome the limitations that I think a lot of people are looking at. The real answer to the question is, look where you least expect it and figure out how to apply it and do the hard work rather than the, you know, hope for something to come to you. No, that's that's great advice. I appreciate that. I guess uh, my next question, I'll kind of go back to the, the sort of fintech finance services partnership side. 
And, and I think I'm going to ask both of you this because I'm, I'm kind of curious. So if I look at using someone in fintech to potentially disrupt a legacy vendor or win a contract over a vendor that just expected it would, one of the things that concerns me is I, I do all this work. I bring in this vendor, Diana, I go through the journey of you know, championing everything, blood, sweat, and tears, get everything in. Everything's wonderful. And then all of a sudden, the big guy with the big balance sheet and you know the big corporate sponsors comes around and buys that. And then I'm out of luck, either because they completely morph it into the old legacy stuff I didn't want in the first place, or they kind of stop investing in it. And then I got to have another plan. So I'll, I'll start with you, Diana. What, what's your, what are your thoughts around that? And how do you, you know, how do you respond to that? And then, you know, Anthony will get your thoughts too. I think it, it goes back, right, to the partnership elements. I think that the, if you start working with a young company, the way we started working with, with you guys, right, it, the partnership becomes very strong. It kind of generates a way for the company to think about its future in a way that's aligned with its customers. We have that with quite a few of our customers that, that were, you know, when we were early stage, where at the beginning, obviously, it's a commitment from the founders, right, which is, you know, long term, not necessarily something you can count on. Uh, but there is a reality that, you know, working with a young company it is about, you know, trust that the people in front of you can actually execute with what they're planning to deliver. And then what happens, you know, because you have this alignment and you actually remain very close and it's, uh, I think from our perspective, we're very close with our customers and thinking about this partnership along the way. We try to really get feedback on the things that they like versus the dislikes uh, that they have from traditional vendors and, and what we do. And as we scale, we've actually made very sure that the things that our customers like remained in place. If you invest in these companies early on and if you actually, you know, get alignment with the founders early on, you can actually really make sure that their, their journey fundamentally is aligned to what you want the technology to continue being, to the spirit of what you want the, the company to continue doing in terms of customer support. Um, and for us, actually, it's been so intrinsic to the way we've done business that fundamentally we've actually really thought when it's come to fundraising and all of that kind of stuff to continue doing something that we made sure made our customers happy. So the more you invest early on, you fundamentally get a lot of skin in the game from the founders to remain loyal to the first customers and to deliver on what they've said they would do. There are obviously some ways that you can also, you know, caveat for that contractually as well. Um, but fundamentally, there is a trust that has to be there. That is why you should be, you know, investing early on, whether it's through a partnership, whether it is through being a customer with these companies, because then you really have a say in their journey so that you make sure they grow with your best interest in mind. Right? And that's that's how we've seen this partnership working. Look, the, the M&A problem is a problem. It makes a ton of sense that all companies want some level of exit, or at least all of investors want some level of exit, right? Whether that's going to be an IPO, a SPAC, an ICO, an acquisition, uh, whatever the case may be, you know, they, that's how investors look at the world. The reality of it is the way to guard against this, in my opinion, and this is going to make a whole lot of people who are very close to me very unhappy to hear me say, but don't sign long-term contracts. Don't sign something that's a five-year deal on something. Don't sign a three-year deal on something. Figure out how to actually embrace that agile execution. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't renew, and sometimes you have to renew six months into a contract because the reality is you need more runway. But that's where I think the, the failure of procurement technologies, the failure of contracts and legal technologies, and, and all going back to your original question, Ty, organizations, large enterprises are just not set up to deal with it. And so we went through a six-month procurement 
procurement process. Great. You know, I don't want to do that again uh, in like, you know, six months. So can you please just sign this 36 month deal? Also, I need to, you know, represent the revenue as ARR and be able to go back to my investors. And like, it just, it's, it doesn't have anyone's best interest in mind. There's got to be a way to facilitate just better contracting process to actually align against budgeting processes. Budgets inside of big companies are broken. So, so broken. Tell me your budget, what you're going to need 18 months from now. I don't even know what I need three months from now. Would you tell me 18 months before COVID happened that there was going to be a world pandemic? So how do you build that flexibility and agility into the budgeting process? How do you make sure that you've got the right level of alignment too, where it's not like there's just a constant churn of now we have to go redo all of these processes, go through all of this overhead and hassle. So build agility into that process so that if somebody does get acquired, Reality is you've got a year before they actually get subsumed and swallowed. Also, the other thing, too, is profile your big companies, because reality is there is a difference between doing business with a Microsoft or doing business with, uh, you know, Symantec or, or a CA or Broadcom now, I guess. There are certain places where if a company gets acquired, you should be asking all of your big vendors, what is your process for making sure innovation when you acquire a small company still benefits me? And if you like their answer, then you can keep them on the list of, okay, no problem. We'll let that you know, thrive and, and, and flourish. But if the answer is, you know, something not to your satisfaction and they don't have a playbook and it's some particular big company that basically swallows small companies and then all of a sudden they disappear six months later, you need to think about the agility of the contract to get out. Just to add to what Anthony is saying, I think that the, the flexibility of getting out of contracts of vendor lock-in is something that all organizations should be very wary of, whether it's with a large company or with a small company. It's just a reality that, you know, any decent tech company will not be afraid on thinking about their business from a subscription perspective, from like an annual evergreen thing that can be canceled. Because if you continue delivering on your tech and if you continue being at the top of your game, there's no reason for anyone to cancel. Above all, in financial services, which tends to be an industry, as Anthony was mentioning, that, you know, moves quite slowly. So once you're onboarded, you continue being used unless you really mess up right so i think it's it's a reality that you have to think you know about the vendor lock-in element in any procurement process in any enterprise software you know whatever the size you guys are, are spot on you know it's uh when i was at, at some other bank that will remain nameless uh that was a big discussion was really how do you shift the vendors to the utility model where you know you kind of pay by the the usage, like the cable guy, like if you don't like their rates and then the next guy is better, you can, you can shift. To me, I think that that's, you know, it's not just about the contract. It's also about the agility inside the firm. Let's assume I get a contract that I can get out of in a short period of time. Can I actually migrate off the technology? We tend to you know, lock in. I think it's not just from a contractual perspective. I think it's from a tech perspective. I find that when SaaS providers are looking into that world, that makes that a lot easier. Uh, and so I think that that tends to be the way to go. And I do think that it's a problem across both. Contracts are, are made and, and budgets are set with the future in mind. Just like you, Anthony, my crystal ball doesn't work. You know, I kick it every day and, and hope it does. Being at my, my personal portfolio, you can tell that it, either it failed or I don't know how to read it properly. <laughs> Let me know if you fix it because I, I am in the market for that. <laughs> I keep trying, you know, I brought it in, but it's not working. And so it doesn't work for, for budgeting either. And it's really interesting because, you know, we're, we're kind of setting a whole bunch of things and then you look, something goes wrong, something unexpected, and everyone looks at you like, how did you know this? And so it is a challenge. And I do think that whether you call it agile or however you look at it, the concept of the continuous funding bit, which is to say, we're going to invest this amount of dollars in this business on an annual basis, and we're going to kind of put it in the hands of the business to prioritize 
what they want to do as opposed to, hey, you got to tell me in the beginning of the year. I think that will that will start to improve and it will align to a model where your contract can be more of a rental, uh, where I say, look, I'll pay you by the month based on usage. And then, you know, if I I'm unhappy with you, I'll start to pull back my usage. We have a company, um, and I, th- I think I've introduced them before, but um, on, on the kind of cloud side, right, uh, intuitive. And what, what's really interesting about some of the models they've created is the concept of a managed engineering model, right? Pay for 10 FTEs, but only pay for the things you use. So get them all aligned, executed, dedicated around, you know, a particular set of topics so that you have the full stack and can use it. And I, I think the same thing needs to happen to contracting. And this is where, and it's I, I won't divulge all of this secrets on innovation futures, but that's exactly where we want to go with it, right? We want to be able to have that flexibility, fungibility, and kind of swapping. We shouldn't be afraid of doing something with a small company because they might get acquired. Um, because to your, your first point of the day, it's always easier to work on contracts with those big companies. Somewhere, something's got to give, and that's kind of the catch-22. Um, but ultimately, the, the elephant in the room is, if you really want to get ahead of it, you have to plan for it, and you have to plan to not be able to plan. And that means baking things in the budget that you can go back to and say, okay, we're going to borrow from here and be agile there, and we're going to invest there. And so why not invest in the concept of an you know, innovation future or whatever the case may be? Oh, I love it. You're talking to a capital markets person, so anything. <laughs> Easy target. Anything, complex finance, it's fantastic. We'll move into uh, crypto derivatives next. So on that note, uh, first of all, just again, thank you guys so much for taking the time uh, to do this today. I, I actually found this really interesting for me. I've taken down a lot of notes. Uh, so selfishly, it's been great, but really, really enjoy chatting with you guys today. Thank you very much. Thank you for having us. Great to meet you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Ty. Thanks, Diana. Thank you for listening to Viewpoint, a TD Securities podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to this series on Google Podcasts or Spotify. For more thought leadership content, visit tdsecurities.com and follow us on LinkedIn for all the latest TD Securities updates. For relevant disclosures to this podcast, please refer to the Viewpoint landing page on our website.